0: Well, good morning. For those of you who know, I'm not Dan. I'm Evan. I was an intern here, and they've let me back onto the pulpit. So it's a great pleasure to be here. With that being said, this was a hard message, because we're going to move through God's response to Daniel, followed by some more prophecy. And as you know, prophecy is usually only clear in hindsight. So we're going to jump into it. But before that, I want to just remind us of where we've been. Because Dan did the first half of Daniel chapter 9, last week. And last week, he talked about how Daniel's devotional time equipped him to live in a nation that no longer supported his faith. And he looked at three things, how Daniel was in the Word, and how God impresses upon us through his Word his thoughts, feelings, and priorities. Then he talked about how Daniel instead of being distracted with his thoughts, his priorities, responded in prayer to what God had demonstrated to him. And lastly, he pointed out how Daniel, after having responded to what Christ had put on his heart, communicated with God with what is on his heart. So I have a question for you. As a church, how many of you think you did well applying what Dan talked about last week to your devotional life? Okay. I got at least a couple. How many of you think they did not do well? And I'm raising my hand because I'm with you. All right, we have a few more. Because Daniel's prayer is actually quite a mournful one. Because as he looks at his nation and looks at their circumstances, he realizes just how far they have come from what God intended. But thankfully, God does not end this chapter at verse 20 because god responds to daniel and that response is a gift of hope not only to daniel but to us today because hope is hard when you look at yourself and look at your nation and you don't see a lot to be excited about hope is hard when gas prices are over a buck 70 Hope is hard when you're doing okay and you're being faithful, but you know the vast majority of those around you don't even acknowledge God. The question is, what do we do when we're not okay? How does God respond to us when we look around and realize, especially in our own lives, we're not as we should be? Our devotional lives, we're not what it should be. Where does that leave us with God? And quite frankly, this is significant because we're moving into the Easter season. And this is where our hope lies. And this is the prophecy Daniel is going to receive in response to his supplication on behalf of his nation. So where are our hope? And I'm going to spoil it. The hope is Jesus Christ. Christ has come, and he will put an end to the struggles that we face. This is where our hope lies. And it's not just a hope for the future, but it's a hope for today. But here's another thing. God responds to Daniel. This is significant, and it's something that we overlook. In verses 20 to 27, God responds to Daniel. And this is unique among Christianity Because most religions of the world, God is not interested in you. Hinduism. You can draw the favors of the gods, but they don't care about you as a person. Muslims are working to gain forgiveness, but God is not interested in them as a person. Uh, Buddhism. God is kind of irrelevant because you need to fix yourself first. Because God is a dispassionate force. Evolution would take this even further, saying that God does not respond to you because he doesn't exist. It's just the natural floor of the elements. But God responds to Daniel. He is interested in Daniel, and he's interested in us. This is the God who has numbered the hairs on your head. And when you pull one out, he changes his count. This is the God who watches the sparrows. He knows when they fall, and how much more does he care about you? is what Jesus asks his disciples. The truth is infinitely more. So as we move into this difficult passage, I want us to keep that in our minds that God is responding to Daniel. And he is going to respond to us. That's where our hope lies. When he saw we were hopeless, he sent Christ in response. Because we are infinitely valuable to him. So let's dig into the passage. Okay, that's not too bad. Um, I'm going to use the NASB. I know it's a little bit more difficult to read, but when we hit prophecy, I need it. (laughs) So, now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins and the sins of the people of Israel and presenting my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instructions and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. And I have come to tell you, you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, I want to stop there for a minute before we get into the vision itself because I want to point out a couple of things. First off, God desires you. God desired Daniel. That word that we translated highly esteemed actually means preciousness. So, Daniel, I have come to tell you that you are preciousness to God. Bad grammar, good theology. We are preciousness to him, even when our entire nation is not doing what it should be. Even when Daniel recognizes in himself that he is not what he should be. Because when Daniel prays in Daniel chapter 9, he includes himself. We have sinned, committed adulteries, acted wickedly. We have not sought you. We have not inclined our ears to you. And when Daniel makes the final supplication in verse 19, he says this for not on any account of our own merit, but on account of your great compassion. Let's be honest. If God did not desire Israel, if he did not desire us, he would have let us wipe ourselves out long ago. Let's think about Israel's journey out of Egypt. They ended up wandering in the wilderness because they refused to go in after seeing miracles every morning. A stiff-necked people. But God desired them, and he still did. He sent them into Babylonian captivity because he desired them, and that hope is what Daniel's is, attention is drawn to. Daniel, I know Israel sinned, but I desire you. And that's a hope we need to cling to when not only life in the world is not as it should be, but when ourselves are not what they should be. When we struggle to implement our devotional time, when we struggle with sin, God still desires us. Although he will not tolerate that sin, he desires you. When things are not right, God still desires us. But he does more than desires us. He also... That's the wrong press. He also acts on our behalf. And this is unique. Most... Religions do not expect their God to act on their behalf when they pray. But God says, at the beginning of your supplication, at the beginning of your prayer, a command was issued. God acts on our behalf, and that is a source of hope. We started off this series talking about if we're going to live openly and honestly about Christ in a culture that does not support that, we're going to have no hope but God acting on our behalf. Because what happens when you're in conflict with the general culture? Any high schoolers, when you are in conflict with the general thoughts of your class, what happens to you? Come on. There we go. If you didn't see this gesture from the balcony, when you, don't st- when you stick out, you get hammered so you don't anymore. And our only hope is that God will act on our behalf, bringing back righteousness, bringing us back to Israel, putting it upon the heart of the king of Babylon to give a decree to send all these dispossessed people back. And this is what we see in verse 23. God is acting on behalf of his people, even though his people are not as they should be. And there's a final thing. Right at the beginning, Gabriel says, I have come forth to give you insight and understanding. Now, let's separate those because they're not always the same thing. Insight, in this case, is a word that means to be prudent. I've come to send you what you need to know to act prudently. And I've sent you understanding to know why that is prudent. Now, important to keep those separately because sometimes God asks us to do something and we will not know why. Sometimes what is prudent to God is completely insane by the culture standards. And the further the culture gets from God, the greater this insanity will grow. And once again, moving back to past sessions, what is the result of insanity? Anyone remember? King Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. He went insane and lost everything until he humbled himself and God restored him. His heir was prideful, refused to humble himself, and died. There's a sin that God God specifically says he hates. It's not the ones we think, it's pride. Because pride says, I do not need you. And if I don't need insight for God, I will never seek him. The truth is, if we're living in a culture, we require the insight to know what is actually prudent. And God promises that sometimes we will understand why. And that understanding does not always come from knowing why this is a good idea, but because I will tell you who I am, and that will bring you understanding. So this is God's response to Daniel, that I'm come to give you insight and understanding, because I'm going to act on your behalf because you are preciousness. So what is this great message? What is this great insight that Daniel's about to receive? Now let's hop into prophecy. So, Seventy weeks, Gabriel tells him, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquities, and bring back everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecies, and to anoint the whole most holy place. I'm just going to pause there. This is a huge promise, that in seventy weeks... I'm going to end sin, make atonements for iniquities, bring back everlasting righteous, finish all visions and prophecy, and anoint my holy place. That's a huge promise that God has just offered Daniel in his time of distress. So you to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. It will be built again with a plaza, a moat, even in a time of distress. Next section is a little bit less encouraging once the clicker changes to it. Ah, there we go. Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince, who is to come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And an end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be wars, desolations are determined." And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of that week, he will put in stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wings of the abomination will come the one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction of that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, for those of you who don't catch that, it says that 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. After that, the city will be destroyed. The one who makes desolate will rise from the people who destroyed the city until he himself is made desolate. So God's promise is that not only the Messiah will come, he will make all these things happen, but at the end, he will also pour out desolation on the prince of that, the prince of the people, probably referring to the Antichrist. So out of this passage, we see a couple of things I want to pull out. We see a time frame, 70 weeks split into seven weeks, 62 weeks, and then one week. An end of sin and atonement for sin will come a place during this time. Everlasting righteousness will be brought during this time. Visions and prophecies will be sealed up during this time. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, destroyed again, and rebuilt again. The Messiah will come, the Messiah will be cut off. The people of the prince will destroy the city and Jerusalem. The people will make! A co- the, pe- ah, the prince makes a covenant for one week, middle of the week, he puts a stop to sacrifice, and on the wings of the abomination to come, one who will make desolate will come and then will be completely destroyed. This section is a mouthful. For those of you who are wondering what's going on, I get to unpack this for you. Happy me. So I have some graphs, because there is three prominent thoughts about what this is, and quite frankly, all of them agree until you hit the last week. So let's jump right into one of the first philosophies. Now the reason I say this is because prophecy is clear in hindsight. That's why the first 69 weeks, there's not much controversy over, because something interesting happens. After the decree goes out to rebuild Jerusalem, 49 years later, the, city, the temple is complete. So you have seven weeks. So if we say each week has seven years in it, that kind of makes sense. We have 49. Interesting that happens next is that 62 weeks later, um, Jesus comes. The Messiah window opens, and Jesus appears right smack dab in that 69 weeks, about 483 years. This is why in Luke and several other of the Gospels, it tells how the people were looking for the Messiah. This is the prophecy why. Because they have an exact time period laid out for when Jesus is coming. And he comes right on time. Now we hit the controversy. Because that last week, there's a lot of things that happened there. This is idea one. That that last week takes place during the final time of Jesus' ministry. And that Messiah being cut off is referring to his crucifixion. So at his crucifixion, he is cut off. However, the ministry continues. They consider the end of that week Stephen being stoned because in their minds, this is the transition between Christ's ministry to Israel and Christ's ministry to the Gentiles. So the time has finished there. This prophecy is completed with the ministry to the Gentiles. Now, for those of you who are keeping track of the requirements, uh, time frame, good. Sin and atonement, Christ's death on the cross put an end to the power of sin and death and gave atonement for sins. That works out. Uh, Bringing everlasting righteousness, if we make that in the spiritual sense, those of us who are in Christ have everlasting righteousness. So kind of sealed up vision and prophecy, little bit shaky, the book of Revelation comes up. So if we're sealing up, finishing prophecy, then this theory doesn't work so great. But again, there's some way, uh, theological ways you can make it work. Uh, Jerusalem temple rebuilt, check. Messiah comes, Messiah cut off, check. Um, Christ crucifixion is seen as the destruction By the Romans, because if Christ's body represents the temple and his death, it works. And the rest of it's kind of shaky ground, because what does this mean? It must mean something we don't understand. So this is the first theory that's out there right now. And it's not a bad one. This is the one that probably most of us have come across, because it is the oldest, and it's one of the better ones. Because in this theory... There's actually a gap of time. So first seven years, check, 49 years. 434 years, check, Jesus comes. Now they would say there's a gap. Because if you look at the text of the scripture, it never actually says these are simultaneous. So if we operate on the assumption that that final week is yet to come and bringing the end of all things, they usually put it at the tribulation. And that midweek refers to other passages in prophecy that says the Antichrist will enter the temple, defile it, offer a pig on this altar, and that happens midway through the tribulation, and then things end. This is also where people get the seven-year tribulation period. So this is what most of us has probably been exposed to, and it fits very well, because the things that don't make sense, they say are probably to come in the final tribulation period. It's a really good model because the stuff that's on shaky ground haven't happened yet. And this fits with the idea that prophecy is fulfilled and then completed because although Christ has brought the freedom from death, the presence of death is not defeated until the second coming. So there's a prophecies that say, yes, we are free from the power of death, but we still die, but that will be put an end to after the second coming. That's why this theory has lasted as long as it has, because it fits better with the greater narrative. Now, this final theory, I want to show you because it's kind of cool. And it's because if you change to the solar calendar, Jesus' resurrection occurs on the very day of the end of the prophecy time. So the day of the decree issued, we know that. Thankfully, the Persians were very good at recording things. We know Jesus' crucifixion based on the time of his ministry. So they put the final week as the opening of the Mosaic window. You can see that Jesus' ministry starts baptism about midway through the week. Temple's overturned. And on the very solar day, he rises from the dead, completing all things. So this is interesting, and this is why people say the book of Daniel was not written until after Jesus' death. Uh, There's a Blodge controversy about people trying to throw out Daniel because of this. It is far too precise to be anything but true, so they say it wasn't written until after things happened. As, De- as Dan pointed out, we have historians who said this prophecy was read to Alexander the Great. So it doesn't flow up with archeology. span The reason I'm showing you this is because this is cool. This is exciting. This is the power of God. Displayed hundreds of years before Christ came the exact time of his death was prophesied. So I show you that to give you excitement of God's power, his truth, his undeniable demonstration of who he is to us. Which one is the most correct? God will tell us after our deaths. <laughs> I'll be honest here. Once he comes again, we will know what he fully meant. I personally gravitate to the second one but I also like this third one because the idea that it is finished as Christ said on the cross and to be completed to come is very compelling to me. But all these work in orthodoxy. Um, which one you gravitate to? Take your pick. They all work. And here's the thing though. I want us to understand what God is telling him because when God is sending the Christ is not important to Daniel. He's not going to live to see it. What's important to Daniel is the answer to his prayer that Israel is not as it should be. My nation, my people, my church is not what it should be. And God says, I will send the Messiah to put a stop to evil, to atone for sins. That's his message to us. When we are not as we should be, which is going to happen more often than not, if we're being honest, it's not over. God has an interest in us and he sent Christ to die for us. And this is hopeful. When we can't do it, Christ died for you. When we have no hope in ourselves, Christ gave atonement for you. When our nation is falling out of control, Christ desires us still. And that's actually where I want to finish us off. On those things, Gabriel tells Daniel, because Jesus Christ is coming. And he's coming for us. And may he come soon. But he already came once, and he died that we may be free. And he demonstrates that God acts on our behalf. He desires you. And he acted when we pray. So pray. That's my encouragement to you. When you are not as you should be, pray. When your nation is not as you should be, Pray. Because God acts on our behalf. Pray like we believe that. I have an announcement to say. Back we have some cards hanging from the balcony. For those of you who may not know what that is, those are prayer requests that Dan challenged us to put out. My three things are not completed, but my prodigal son has returned. And that's exciting. God responds to our prayers. Prodigal son has returned. He acts on our behalf, so pray like you believe that. Because if we're honest, sometimes we don't. God says insight and understanding to us. Now, I want to camp there for a while because he gives us the ability to act prudently through his word. We may not understand why it's prudent, but he promised to give us understanding of who he is. They're not the same thing, but they align quite closely. How many of you like the book of Job? i got a couple of you. Because the book of Job is a problem to a lot of people because they don't understand why. And God never answers that question. He tells Job who he is. Not why this happened, but who I am. That's understanding. So when you don't understand the why this is prudent, dig into the scriptures to looking for who God is. That's the understanding God has for you. You may not know why this is prudent, but A, God commanded it, so it is prudent. And the why may not be why this is understanding the situation, but understanding who God is more. So dig into the scriptures when you don't understand. When you're asked to do something that doesn't make sense, like forgive your enemies. When you're asked to do something that doesn't make sense, like extend grace and mercy, It's not to do with the situation. Find out who God is and you'll understand. That's what he told us. Seek first me. Knock and the door will be open. And I will give you all knowledge and insight. Too often we get this backwards when things are bad. We're trying to figure out why this is prudent. Why is this a good idea? What can I do? Because if I understand why, I can do something about it. That's backwards. Act prudently. Study God and you'll understand. So when you don't understand why it's prudent, God. Dig into the word, find out who he is. And lastly, and probably the most encouraging thing, is that God desires you. That's a message to this church, and it's a message to our world, and this is why he said, go out and preach the gospel. God desires you. When your class doesn't desire you, when your friends don't desire you, that hasn't changed the fact that God does. And when our culture does not desire us, because we say this culture is going in a way that does not align to what God has told us, God desires us. And it desires them. Love. And greater love has no more than this than what Christ did on the cross. And this is Communion Sunday, with Easter just on the corner. So I want us to go into this celebrating that God desired in us to die that he acts on your behalf and he is giving you insight to what is prudent and understanding to who he is. So with that, let us partake in communion, a celebration of what Christ did. I'd like to invite those who are helping.